Fellowship. Hope you're doing well this morning. Hey, if you don't know me, am I on? Are we good? Bueller? Bueller? If you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I serve here at the church as an elder in training. I serve on staff here and do a few other things around the building as well. Honored to be preaching to you guys this morning. Uh, we are continuing in the book of Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 7. And if you grew up in church, most churches end the book of Daniel with Daniel chapter 6. But we are not most churches, Mercy Fellowship. And so we are continuing on in the book of Daniel with Daniel chapter 7. It's got some beasts in there. We've got Halloween coming up tomorrow. And if you're a flaming reformer, then you're excited about the October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses uh, to the door of Wittenberg. So, there's a lot to be excited about. Excited to be preaching this morning. So, if you've got a Bible, open up Daniel chapter 7. And let me give you just a quick, quick um, episode recap as far as where Israel's at in their story currently. Uh, hundreds of years ago, Israel's enslaved by the nation of Egypt. And they cry out to God that God would deliver them for decades, and they hear nothing. They cry out to God for centuries, and they hear nothing. And eventually, one day, God answers their prayer, and he gives them, and he gives them, uh, he gives them a savior in Moses. Moses comes, he frees them from uh, slavery in Egypt, leads them out into the wilderness. They're not perfect when they're in the wilderness. They go through some things, and after 40 years, they go to a land that God has promised for them. This is the promised land. This is supposed to be a land that's flowing with milk and honey. This will be a place for God's people where, where they're going to have rest. This is going to be a place for God's people of, of safety. This is going to be a place of them for, for prospering for God's people, something of which they haven't experienced for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're going to be able to worship their God freely and consecrate a temple for him. Uh, this is going to be a taste of heaven on earth for God's people. And what happens as the, as the years go on and as the decades go on, they do what all humans tend to do, and that's when prosperity begins to happen. We, we begin to forget God. When things go well, when things go smoothly, isn't that the case for you and for me? We begin to forget God. We forget to acknowledge that all these good and great gifts have come from God's hand, and that's what they did. God's people, they eventually began to start worshiping other gods from the nations. They began to mix their worship, not just with the God of Israel, but with the foreign idols that were around them. And what happened then is this, prophets would arise and prophets' roles were this, they would receive a word from God and then they'd communicate it to man. And they would receive this word and they'd say, hey, thus says the Lord, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. And if you don't change your ways, there will be severe consequences for us as a nation. And in response to this, false prophets rose up. And false prophets are going to do what false prophets are going to do. And they talk about everything's great, everything's fine. God doesn't care at all about what you worship or who you worship. In fact, when you go up to battle, God is for you. You just need to name it and proclaim it. And in his name, it will be yours. And what would happen is this. False prophets, obviously, they're false. And so they're wrong more times than they're right. I deal with this when it comes to construction. I've got guys that will come work for our company, and they, they repeatedly will tell me, you know, Curtis, I've got 10 years of experience. You know, Curtis, I've got 10 years of experience. Like, the more you say it, the less I believe you, you know? It doesn't help that you repeat it. So what happens is this. The false prophets keep saying this. They listen to the false prophets, and things don't go well for them. 
Babylon, one of the foreign nations, comes up to Israel and obliterates them. Absolutely obliterates them. In fact, the king, King Jehoiakim, he is left uh, out into slavery, cuffed hand and foot, while the nation that God had promised them as land flowing with milk and honey is in flames behind them. This place that God gave to them for their flourishing, they just reject entirely. In fact, it's so gruesome that when the men get to Babylon, they become eunuchs. It's recorded by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 13 that the little children were dashed to pieces in front of them and that their women were ravished. Mercy Fellowship, this is a horrific situation that Israel is in. And so we get to Daniel chapter 7, and the story of Israel thus far is this. It's not just that they're losing, they've lost. They've lost their nation, they've lost their family, they've lost their people, they've lost seemingly their God, and in so doing that, they've lost their hope. And perhaps you come in this morning and you're identifying with that. I don't know what stories you might come in with, but perhaps you're coming in this morning, and yes, things seem bleak in the future. Yeah, things don't seem good for the horizon. It seems like when I pray to God, He doesn't answer. It seems like the hope that I once had for a better future doesn't exist anymore. And what God's people needed back then, and what God's people need today is always this. It is an injection into our lives of what is ultimately true. It's not enough for us, Mercy Fellowship, that we know the beginning of the story. We must also know how it ends. And when we know how it ends, this will give us hope. And this hope allows us to endure through the valleys and hard times of sin and suffering and pain and ultimately death, something that we will all face. And so if you've got a Bible, Daniel chapter 7, if not, it'll be up on the screen for you. You can follow along. This is apocalyptic literature, and so don't read it literally. We're going to explain it, and then Daniel's going to explain it, and so it's going to go well for us, okay? Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he laid in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four great beasts, they came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. And then as I looked at its wings, they were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings and a, of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up one from another, a horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by their roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. We don't need to interpret that at all, right? We're, everyone gets that? We're on the same page? 
When it comes to apocalyptic literature, church, let's go ahead and just set a, a, a ground-level rule for us before we begin. Uh, we must be careful when it comes to apocalyptic literature of reading 21st century Western eyes into the text. You with me on this, church? The reason for this is this. Uh, if you were like me and you do research trying to get ready for this, there's a lot of people that will go ahead and read the first beast, and they'll say, okay, well, there's a lion, and it has eagle's wings, and so this probably means like Britain and America are in cahoots with each other, and they make really horrible collages uh, on the internet, and they're just pasting things together. It's not that. It's not that, okay? Uh, Matt Chandler, he's a pastor in Texas, and he has a great saying when it comes to apocalyptic literature. And he says this, it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. You with me, church? It cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. The, the idea behind that is this, God's word, it is written for us, okay, as God's people. In all times, in all places, God's word applies to us. God's word is elastic in that sense. However, it's not written to us. Does that make sense? God's word, it is written for us, but it's not written to us. It's not written to you and me in 2022 in Marysville, Washington. No, this letter, it is written to a group of suffering Israelites in Babylon who are in exile. And so because of that, we have to be careful to, to dissect not only the words, but the images. And once we get behind those, then we get to the reality of what's being talked about. So three things that are going to be up on the stage and I mean, that we're going to be talking about. And I actually have a picture that I wanted to get because Pastor Chris had such a cool one, I wanted to get one too. And so this is one from a, a, an artist named Gustav Dorr. Uh, if you like any apocalyptic images, he's most likely drawn an image of one or two of them. And so I really like this picture. It's not even accurate actually to what we're reading. Sorry about that, Chris. I apologize. But, uh, but it, I think it captures the terror of the vision. So I'm going to leave that up there while we're talking about this section. But there's three things I want to highlight for you guys, okay? Three things, the sea, the beasts, the horns, oh my. We'll talk about them all. The great sea, what does that mean? Well, when the Bible talks about the great sea or the sea, what it's talking about is this. It's talking about godlessness and instability. That's what that image represents. In fact, if you know your Bible at all, towards the end of it, in Revelation 21, it talks about this new heavens and this new earth that God will create for his people, It'll be a place where there's no more sin or suffering or pain anymore. And then it says, and the sea was no more, okay? God is not anti-sea, okay? We live here on the Pacific Northwest. I love being close to the ocean, okay? God created the sea. So what's it saying? Well, it's saying that there's not going to be godlessness when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. And so this thing that right here, this sea, this great sea, it is a picture of godlessness and instability, and out of this sea arises four beasts. These four beasts, they represent nations. The first one is a lion with eagle's wings that are plucked off. Once the wings are plucked off, it's given, it falls down on four like a beast, and eventually it's given a mind of a man, and it's restored to him. And if that sounds familiar to you, that's because it is. Most scholars believe this is referring to King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. If you remember a few chapters ago, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, he really thought himself better than everyone else. You know, you kind of think about the image. He's flying. He's floating above everyone else. And Daniel calls on him, hey, you need to repent. You need to trust in God. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. So what happens? He falls down on fours, and it's like a beast of the field, and eats grass. And eventually, once he repents, the mind of a man's restored to him. 
And so scholars believe this is referring to King Nebuchadnezzar. More broadly, it's referring to Babylon, though. The second beast, bear with three ribs in its mouth, it's given the task to rise, devour, and eat much flesh from God. And scholars believe this represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The third beast, this is a leopard, and it has four heads, and it has four wings, and scholars believe this refers to Greece. Uh, They believe that this represents more specifically Alexander the Great. And as his conquest was so fast and so great, he eventually divided his kingdom up to four of his generals, representing the four heads and the four wings. The last beast, though, church, is one that catches Daniel's eye. And I hope it catches your eye as well. This beast, there's not even human language to describe this beast that Daniel is talking about. This beast, he's terrifying. He's dreadful. He's exceedingly strong and has iron teeth. It has ten horns on its head, three of which are ripped from the roots, and then one's put in its place with eyes and a mouth and boasts of great things. Most scholars, I believe, this one refers to the Roman Empire and how strong it was, and how much it devoured, and how much it took over. The horns they talk about symbolize not only the strength of the kingdom, but also the kings that would come in place. So two things, church, I want you to know about these beasts. Number one, not number one, if this sounds familiar to you, it's because it is, and we'll go ahead and we'll talk about that in a second, but the two things I want you to know about these beasts is this. Number one, these beasts are against God. If it's not obvious to you already, these beasts, they come out of this great sea. They come out of godlessness. They come out of chaos. And the theme of beasts, it actually goes throughout all of Scripture. If you know the beginning of the book, in the book of Genesis, Eve, she is deceived by a beast. She's deceived by a serpent. And the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it is this great beast that wages war against God's people. Beasts that are throughout all the Bible, and they're meant to communicate that they are are against God and against God's people. The second one, though, is this, that I want you to know about these beasts. These nations that these beasts represent are in total depravity. They're in total depravity. If it sounds familiar to you, it's probably because it is. Back in Daniel chapter 2, there was a vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had. In this vision, it was of a statue with four parts to it. And then a meteor came and just obliterated this statue. And what's being communicated in that vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had is the strength of those kingdoms and how the kingdom of God is much stronger than all those kingdoms. So I want you to think about it like this. If King Nebuchadnezzar's dream for the four uh, nations is how strong they are and how much stronger the kingdom of God is and comes and obliterates them, this vision that Daniel has is about how depraved these four nations are and how God's going to judge them and hold them accountable for their actions. That's the difference between these two visions that we have here. And so, Mercy Fellowship, the picture's painted for you and for me. Do you see it? Do you understand what's happening? This vision that's happening, this is meant to be an immersed experience. And, and Mercy Fellowship, you know it's to be true when it comes to images, right? Uh, if I was to give you an image of an elephant and donkey in a boxing ring, and the colors are red and blue, 99% of you know what that means, right? That communicates. We understand that in our culture. But images, they go beyond just as an image. They're meant to communicate something. You think about something like the Seattle Kraken, right, our, our NHL team. It's not enough that they're just guys with hockey sticks. They have to be a sea monster. They need to communicate intimidation. That's what they're going for. Think of America, right, with a, being represented by an eagle. 
It's meant to communicate strength and freedom. Fun fact, actually, while I was doing research on this, I learned from one of the, the commentators I was reading that he said Benjamin Franklin, actually, when they were trying to figure out what we'd be represented by, repre uh, he requested a turkey. And I think it's pretty accurate because I think we're a nation of a bunch of turkeys. And so uh, I'll leave that there for now, but uh, I thought that was pretty humorous. This picture is painted, though, church. So these beasts, they arise out of a great sea of chaos and godlessness. And the question to ask at this point is this. Who is going to hold these beasts accountable? These beasts, they are great in strength and might. Who's going to stand up to these beasts, right? Who will hold them accountable for their actions? You think about it, this, Mercy Fellowship. Think about how we started this morning and how we were talking about, um, how we were talking about Babylon, and how much they destroyed and ruined Israel. Who's going to hold them accountable for that? Who's going to put them in their place? Right? Furthermore, though, another thing of terror that comes for Israel. It's not just that they have Babylon. There's three more beasts after Babylon that are going to be waging war against God's people. They're already hopeless. They're already lost. And Daniel, rather than coming in swinging with hope right away, his vision begins with things get worse before they get better. Things aren't going well. There's three more beasts that happen. And what happens in this vision that Daniel has is that the vision is reoriented. The vision is reoriented from these beasts to a vision of the throne room of God. And perhaps for some of you this morning, that needs to happen to you. Perhaps for some of you this morning, you're really good at staying up with current events you're really good at following the Daily Wire or CNN. You're really plugged into what's happening in the news, but you don't get any visions of the throne room of God. You neglect your Bible. You don't know what's ultimately true. And what most likely will happen is you'll be in despair. You look at this world, you look at the things going on, you think, man, can things get better? Is there any hope? Not in the news clippings, but there might be in the throne room of God. We'll continue on, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Daniel's vision changes from the ground to the heavens. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days he took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and it was given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The judgment seat. Daniel's vision changes from chaos and godlessness to the throne room of God, and there what does he see? He sees order. He sees godliness of the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, God himself, depicted in this picture, he's depicted wearing all white. This is to communicate his purity. If anyone has the right judgment to judge these nations, it is the Ancient of Days. There is no spot or blemish in him. He judges with right judgment. He is pure in all of his actions and motives. He wears white. Along with him wearing white, he has white hair. This is meant to signify the wisdom with which he has. He, he's the Alpha and the Omega church. He is the beginning and the end. 
He is the ancient one. What does this communicate? Communicates he's been around. He knows a thing or two. He has the wisdom to judge rightly against these nations. Mercy Fellowship, beyond just that picture itself, he's sitting on this chariot throne. The the wheels, they're made up of fire, symbolizing him as a divine warrior. From his throne comes a river of fire, and he is surrounded by thousands of angelic beings. Mercy Fellowship, I, I want you to know this. You have the privilege of calling the Ancient of Days your father, and that's a huge blessing, but don't domesticate him. Don't make him to be something he's not. This is God. He does what he wants. He makes sure that things happen. He's here for business. This is his job, and he is holding these nations accountable. And uncountable numbers before his throne. 10,000 times 10,000. Everyone's coming to the throne, and court's in session, and the books are opened. These beasts... These beasts who thought they could get away with things. These beasts who deceived God's people. These beasts who abused God's people. No longer can they not be held accountable. They will have to give an account for their lives before the throne. What do you think Israel is thinking and feeling when they read this? I would imagine a sense of hope, right? A sense of hope and victory. A a celebration and an excitement yet, uh, possibly that the wrongs are going to be made right, that all that was stolen from Israel is going to be restored, that all that brought ruin and abuse, healing is going to take place, and that all that's been killed and put to death will eventually be brought to life. I imagine there's, there's a great sense of hope that they have. Mercy Fellowship, this applies to you and to me in this way. Some of you, you've lost family members to the deception of the beast. You've lost children, you've lost grandchildren to the deception of the beast that tells them to not trust God, to not love God, to not follow God. And those who have deceived your family and your friends and your loved ones, they will be held accountable for their actions. Praise be to God for that. In fact, to continue on just to capture how strong this Ancient of Days is, that final beast that there's not even language for, who's so terrifying and dreadful and fearful and has iron teeth killed in an instant, burned up with fire that proceeds from the throne of God. What hope for Israel? What hope for God's people? Justice will be served one day. Praise be to God for that. And yet, Mercy Fellowship, the other side of the coin, I imagine, just thinking of myself, putting myself in Israel's shoes, if I was in their position, there would be hope, but I'd probably have some despair on the backside of that. Because I would think about my life before the throne, and I'd think, oh, I, I played a role in deceiving people. Oh, I actually turned away from God and began to worship other idols. Oh, I sacrificed my my children on the altar of convenience and prosperity to the God of Molech. Oh, if, if I stand before this ancient of days, if I stand before this one who is before all time, I'm going to stand guilty. 
I imagine some despair is beginning to set into their minds that they will stand guilty because they played their part in the beast's deception. And Mercy Fellowship, this is true for all of us. This picture of the throne room of God, one day you and me, we will stand before the Ancient of Days and we will be giving an account for our lives and our actions and all that we've done. How are you going to do on that day? How are you going to fare? If Daniel's vision ends here, you and me are going to be judged, will be condemned, and we will be sentenced to hell for eternity justly. Justly. You say, why eternity, Curtis? Because we sin against an eternal God. We mock an eternal God. We worship an eternal God. That's why. If the vision ends here, we are all done for. But thanks be to God, it doesn't. And thanks be to God, there's one who enters into the throne room. We continue reading, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and the glory and the kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man, he enters into the throne room of God as the vision continues, and he looks human in this picture. Dominion, it's taken from the beasts, and it's given to this Son of Man, where all nations and all languages and all tongues are drawn to him to serve him, to love him to worship him. Son of man, this literally translates son of Adam. Mercy Fellowship, this is really significant. I'm going to take you to school for a few minutes, so put on your thinking caps, because we, we really need to f understand what's happening right here with this son of man, translating son of Adam. If you know your Bibles, where do we hear Adam first in the Bible? In the beginning, right? In the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God creates Adam, and he is the, the representative for the human race, right? So it's not just that he is God's first created creature, but he represents the human race. And the joke can often be made. People will say, oh, I can't wait to see Adam in heaven. I'm going to let him have it for screwing this thing up. But you need to know this. Adam is the best of us, okay? If you and me as a human race collectively came together and we were trying to find someone to represent us before God, we would choose Adam. Well, why is that, Curtis? Well, number one, he's perfect. So he's better than all of you, Okay. That's one. He's better than me. Number two, he's placed in the Garden of Eden. This is a perfect place that has no sin, okay? So he's perfect. He's in a perfect situation. Number three, just to make sure he doesn't sin, God gives him a wife. And so he is covered on every base to not sin. All right, Adam, this is your opportunity. Go represent the human race before God for us. And what does Adam do? He fails. He sins. Yeah, it is Eve that is deceived by the, by the serpent, by the beast, but Adam's held accountable. Why is that? Because Adam's the representative of the human race. That's why. Adam, it was your job to, to cast down that beast. It was your job to let people know, and you failed. Adam's sin, it's one of omission. You've heard of sins of commission where you said the wrong thing, you did the wrong thing, you acted the wrong way. But there's also sins of omission, though, where you acted cowardly. Where you didn't say what you were supposed to say. Where you didn't stand up in the right opportunities. 
Adam's sin is one of omission. And because of this, therefore, they are cast out of the Garden of Eden. Mankind is cast out of the presence of God. And yet there's a promise that's given in Genesis 3.15. God, he's staring down at the serpent. And he's got a promise for this serpent, this beast. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The promise is this. There's going to be one that comes from the line of Adam and Eve. He's going to be a a son of Adam, if you will. And he's going to crush that beast's head. And he's going to have a bruised heel in response. The son of Adam, the son of man. We fast forward, church, all the way to the Gospels at this point. We fast forward to the person of Jesus. Everyone at that time in Jesus' life, they're looking for the Christ. Where's the Christ? Who's the Christ? What does he look like? Where is he at? Where's he going to be? Where's Waldo? That kind of thing. Where's he at? And Jesus refers to himself as the Christ every now and then, but he refers to himself as his favorite nickname, as the Son of Man, about 81 times. Jesus knows who he is. Around 81 times, he refers to himself as, no, I'm the Son of Adam. I've come to slay the beast. In fact, if you want to tie all this together, make a nice uh, neat box, Mark 14, 62, there's this section where Jesus is arrested before he goes to the cross. He's being uh, put on trial against the religious leaders. And they ask him this, are you the Christ? And he says this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Translation, oh yeah, I'm the Son of Man, and I'm seated right next to the Ancient of Days, and I'm riding on the clouds. This is, a, he pulls this from Daniel 7. Jesus knows who he is. He is the Son of Man. So Mercy Fellowship, full circle now. Picture yourself in that throne room. Picture yourself for the Ancient of Days. Who's your representative? Is your representative Adam? Or is it Jesus, the second Adam? Is it the first Adam who failed? Or is it the second Adam, Jesus, who succeeded? The first Adam, he failed to save us from the beast. But the second Adam slays the beast for his people. The first Adam, we all die in him. But in the second Adam, we are all made alive in him. The first Adam, we are condemned before the throne of God. And in the second Adam, we stand pardoned from our sins against God. Who's your representative, Mercy Fellowship? I want to challenge you. Do not leave today without some clarity of where you stand come judgment day. Make certain today that you know, when you get to that throne room of God, that you know where you stand. When you get before that throne, are you going to get up and say, well, God, you know, I was a good person. I did the right things. My good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. I tried really hard. Or are you going to say, as the old hymn Rock of Ages says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to that cross I cling. What happened on the cross, that counts for me. And when Jesus said it is finished, I believe that counts for me. I'm going to go with the second Adam. The Son of Man, he comes and slays the beast for his people. Now, how does that apply for us, right? It's a really nice saying, it sounds good, but what does it actually mean for you and me as far as how it applies and how we can take that with us? 
Let's go ahead and we'll read the rest of the chapter, and then we'll go ahead and conclude with a few things that come from it. It's a longer section, verses 15 through 28. Daniel says this, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. That's an understatement right there. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings that shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And I desire to know the truth of the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly uh, terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and it seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High in a time when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast... There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall, break words against, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And shall think to change the times and the law, for they shall be given into his hand. For a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, and to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Verse 27. And the kingdom, and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I love how honest Daniel is. He said, I was terrified. My color left my body. Freaked me out, you know. That's the right response to that vision. Three things, Mercy Fellowship, I want you to take away. Number one, God steps into our story to save us. God steps into our story to save us. You know, you think at the beginning of this section, these four beasts, they arise out of the earth. They're terrifying. They're great. The fourth one is exceedingly terrifying. And what happens, though? The dominion that those kingdoms had is taken from them, and it's given to the Son of Man. What happens? God intervenes. You know, if you show up this morning, you're a follower of Jesus. That's your story. Your story is that God intervened in your life. I remember, grew up in church, I really hated going to church, I hated, I didn't hate, I was just indifferent to things of God, and I went to youth group because they had skateboard ramps and barbecue, it tells you where I was at, you know, in life, and I went there, and there was my youth pastor, he preached a message on his relationship with Jesus, how it surpassed all other relationships, and, and it just gripped me, all of a sudden, I had a new desire I'd never had before in my life, where I was like, oh, I want that, and it changed my life forever. It changed it incredibly positively. In fact, really funny, my, uh, I heard about it this week. My wife's family, they go to a church in Snohomish, and I'm from Snohomish. And one of the guys that's on staff at their church I used to go to high school with. And so my sister-in-law's chatting with him, and she's like, hey, you know Curtis Hall? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know Curtis. How's he doing? She's like, yeah, he's my, he's my brother-in-law and stuff. 
And anyways, yeah, he serves at a church and stuff, and apparently his reaction was pretty dramatic. He's a Christian? Oh, man, I love hearing that, though. Why? What happened to Curtis's life? God intervened. You know, for your story, whether you grew up in church or you've been, uh, you came to uh, faith later in life, that's your story. God intervened. God gave you a new desire to follow him, to love him, to trust him, to obey him. Number one is this, that God steps in to our stories to save us. In fact, coming up in Christmas, and I can't even believe I'm saying that, but coming up in Christmas in a few weeks, we're going to learn about God with us, Emmanuel. What does God do? God does not ask you to ascend the mountain to reach him. He comes down and intervenes in our lives. This is who our God is. God steps into our story to save us. Number two, God slays the ultimate beast for his people. These beasts, these systems, these nations, they deceive people to not worship God, and they fall prey to worshiping other things. And eventually this terrifying, this dreadful, incredibly strong beast, the last one, they will fall to the justice that will be paid for them one day. But you got to think about this, though, right? The story of these beasts waging war against God's people, it goes beyond Daniel. In fact, when it gets to you and to me, the place that it gets to is this. We have the beast to face of Satan and sin and death. And what Jesus does for you and for me is he enters into our story of human history and he goes to the cross. And when he dies on the cross, he defeats Satan, the great beast and enemy of God's people. He comes and he, he takes away our sin, the sin that we've inherited from our first father, Adam. He takes all of our sin on the cross and he gives us his perfect standing before the throne room of God. For the purpose, Mercy Fellowship, that you might have confidence before the throne, like the writer of Hebrews says. Then finally, by his resurrection, Jesus defeats death as the one now who holds the keys to Hades. This is what our God does. He slays the ultimate beast for his people. All for this reason, church, that you might have confidence before the throne someday. Third and final one, we share in the victory of the Son of Man. This kingdom that the Son of Man wins, if you want to think about it in, in the whole biblical narrative idea, it's this. It's really to restore what was meant to be in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, dominion was given to God's people. It was given to Adam. And Adam failed. And when Jesus comes back and he slays the beast by, through his death and resurrection and his ascension, before he leaves, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. What happened? The dominion was given back to the Son of Man. He's restoring that which has been taken. He's restoring that which has been lost. And Jesus invites us into that victory that he has. We share in that victory. So let me conclude with this, Mercy Fellowship. Uh, last uh, few weeks, I have uh, been trying to cut back on social media. I don't know if you get it, but come Sunday morning, I'm reminded of how much I'm not good at being a human for how much time I spend on my phone and social media. And uh, so I was trying to cut back, just try to do some healthier items, uh, healthier habits, you know. And anyways, this last week, I was getting on social media, just, you know, just getting ready to preach and stuff and checked back on. And as I'm scrolling, I'm like, man, like, I'm feeling depressed as I go through social media. You know, I feel like Charlie Brown from the Christmas special. Like, what's wrong, Charlie Brown? I'm depressed. You know, like, that's how I was feeling. I was just scrolling away. And, and as I was reading these articles, it's like, oh, man, well, Boeing just lost billions this quarter. Not millions, billions. Amazon, you know, their warehouses, they just stopped working on all of them throughout the nation. 
They're talking about supply chain shortages. They're talking about food shortages coming up. I was chatting with a guy yesterday and he was telling me that uh, there's diesel shortages. And like all of this starts to like swell up in my mind and my body. And I'm like, man, the, the future looks bleak. The future looks hopeless. Now, Mercy Fellowship, hear me on this. I am no prophet. I don't get paid to be a prophet, okay? I don't want the lifestyle of a prophet. They usually are murdered. I don't want that, okay? So I'm no prophet. But whether this is a feeling that I have or whether this is, ulti- or whether this is true, I need to be reminded, as you do, of what is ultimately true. And what's ultimately true is this. It all lands at the throne room of God, surrounding and worshiping the Son of Man. And he pulls people from all languages and tongues and peoples and draws them to himself. So Mercy Fellowship, I'll ask you again, where's your hope? Who represents you before God? If Jesus represents you, I invite you, when we come and sing, to come take communion. This is where we are reminded that Jesus slayed the beast on our behalf. We eat of the bread. We're going to go ahead and have some of the wine as well, representing his broken body for us and shed blood. If you have yet to be baptized, I want to encourage you to be baptized. This is a a step of obedience that Jesus has for you and for me of saying, hey, I don't identify with the deception of the nations of the beasts, and I have died to that way, and now I live in Christ. If you're interested in doing that, you can talk to me, talk to Pastor Chris. We'd love to make that happen for you. Let's pray, Mercy Fellowship.